I'm delighted to announce that this podcast is now sponsored by the Heaton Boxing Academy. It is Ireland's most popular boxing and fitness class. They have three locations across Dublin, located in Sandyford, Lansdowne and Grand Canal Docks. You burn over 600 calories during a class and also get to meet new people and enjoy yourself as the staff there are really, really great. And I do mean that. So go check out their site. It's linked below or else can be found at hedonboxing.ie. And why don't you sign up for their 10 class program while you're at it? And if you DM them on Instagram or email them through their website with the discount code RALLIN, you will get 10% off the usual price. So how's that for a deal? All you got to say is RALLIN. And you get 10% off, just like that. First 10 classes, 10%. Great deal. So get involved, get fit, and bring some positive energy to that place. I'm telling you now, you will not regret it. It's great for whatever fitness goals you have. Just go, use the discount code, and thank me later. Okay? You will enjoy it, and you will, will keep going. And welcome to the latest episode of Rounds Recap. My guest today is Charlie Morgan, and we are here to preview the upcoming Rugby World Cup and all that's happened over the past few months and especially the last few weeks. So, Charlie, thanks a million for taking time out to come on and chat all things rugby. And how are you getting on this evening? No, yeah, no worries at all. Um, really looking forward to the tournament. It's we're recording this on a Monday evening, and then. In exactly a week's time, I'll be either on the tarmac or just having kind of taken off. So, yeah, kind of excitement at fever pitch. Just really looking forward to to getting going now. Yeah, the bluff is over, so to speak. So yeah. it's uh, all eyes firmly on Japan, and a lot has happened over the past few weeks with the games, the drama of the selection. Um, but like, what are some of the things that have stood out in these warm-up games, or even if you include the rugby championship, have has anything popped out in your mind that you've kind of taken notice of, or has it been pretty much same old, same old? Oh, loads of things. I think you, you've got to be so careful in one sense watching these warm-up games, and as you, you're right to kind of group the rugby championship games in with that. You, on one hand, you've got to be careful not to kind of disregard everything you've thought of these teams in the in the cycle kind of leading up to it the three years previously leading up to this tournament but also actually you've got to be mindful of the fact that these coaches have had an unprecedented time with their players and they're making these big kind of tactical shifts based on things they're going they think are going to work out in japan so you know you look at kind of two two kind of selections i guess that have stood out for me if you look at new zealand and you look at how they've given the um Bowden Barrett at 15 and Richie Moanga at 10 every chance they can to work. And it's the same sort of thing as um, England trying uh, Tom Curry at six with either Mark Wilson or or Sam Underhill. England have been trying that for a long time and they only haven't been able to do that because Underhill and Curry just haven't been fit at the same time. They've kind of missed each other and they're playing in an abrasive position, obviously, and they're young guys who are kind of um, building up steel to to senior rugby even so um yeah it's it's, it's been fascinating because i think it, although you'll you'll hear you know these games don't matter and you do get 
strange scorelines, as Joe Schmidt kind of pointed out, because teams are at a different kind of physical state leading up to the tournament. But I, th- I certainly think a lot of the tactical things have had a lot of significance about them. And that's been that's been really fascinating. The other side of it, you know, we talk about the, the physical state of side and ha- sides and how that's fluctuated and teams have met each other at different points. The psychology I've found fascinating and actually looking at it, kind of looking at the home nations now, I don't, I don't think any of them will be too displeased with the results because sort of England bought themselves time by beating Wales and then Wales bought themselves time by beating England the next week. Ireland obviously got off to a poor start but then beat Wales twice and I think um, and likewise kind of Scotland got pumped by France but then came back and won won that won the return game and then beat Georgia twice. So they'll be they'll be pretty sweet as well I think and I think maybe Wales might have felt a bit of frustration with how Saturday went and how they kind of surrendered in that second half a little bit. But all in all, it's kind of ended ended up kind of on a on an even keel with those four sides, especially. And that kind of sums up, you know, it's it's kind of there've been physical concerns, there've been psychological concerns as well. But the most fascinating thing definitely has been seeing the kind of little tactical tweaks that have been going on, and um, yeah, that's that's just been really interesting. Yeah, I well, know that's a it's a valid point and a good example of say some of the tactical tweaks is say from an Irish point of view when you think of Joe Smith's teams you're thinking power plays you're thinking pressure game you're thinking box kicking and I'm pretty sure it wasn't until last weekend that we actually saw Ireland use the box kick when Conor Murray was on the pitch which was quite interesting because you saw they were actually running from deep they were doing these up and unders to kind of regain possession just outside their 22 so that's just an example. And then, as you said, with England, they've tried out different combinations. They've ditched some of their old horses like Dylan Hartley, etc., for seems what seems like a bit more of a up-tempo game. And I suppose across the board, do you... I know it's hard to predict until you actually see the games, but you think, like Ron O'Gara was on um, radio there a few days ago saying that he thinks the attacking, kicking game will be absolutely crucial and he was talking about how good South Africa are at their kicking game now creating pressure which leads to points but do you think there's anything that you could be confident enough to say that is going to be a massive part of the World Cup whether it's tactical or yeah I suppose tactical whether it's an attack or defense you think there's going to be certain things that you're going to be seeing from all the top teams I think I think one thing to to note is that teams will have as we say they've kind of worked they've tried to work in a few selection things to cover a few bases and they'll cover they'll pick teams and they'll pick tactics according to opponent I think they'll have they'll have had more time to sort that out but I think the tactical kicking thing is a seriously interesting um interesting component of the tournament coming up one of the guys who is one of the most interesting to listen to and one of the most generous with his insight in the England camp is is George Ford and he's been talking about how a backline has needed kicking options outside 10 and further and further out from you know 12 to 13 to even the wingers needing a kicking game he's been talking about that for a couple of years and I think actually when England came back from Treviso having had that kind of tune-up camp to train in humidity that they thought was going to most accurately mirror um, the conditions they're going to find out in Japan. Ford was up for interviewing again and what he said was that the greasiness and the sweatiness of those conditions actually make it most like playing in kind of torrential rain. So that kind of heightens the importance of the kicking game again because as he said, sometimes teams don't want the ball. Now, 
Another layer on top of that has been South Africa played Japan at the weekend. They're only in possession, shameless plug. There's a piece on the on the Telegraph looking into how those how seven tries were scored in that game. South Africa scored six and ended up with a really kind of impressive, resounding win over an informed Japan team. But they had the mm. ball for 54 rucks in the game, which is a really tiny amount. They kicked the ball 33 times. I think they spent like, the maximum amount of time they sort of spent kind of in one sequence of possession would have been you know four or five phases at the very very most they didn't want the ball and that's kind of that's a trend that I know some people just don't like to hear because it kind of feels uh, sounds kind of negative and it sounds counterintuitive but teams that are comfortable without the ball are going to do very well in this World Cup I think so you look at a team like Wales or a team a team like England are very good South Africa are very good New Zealand have been the masters of it overall kind of um, sort of traditionally scoring off turnover ball scoring off kind of just just being patient enough to to stay with their kicking game until a team makes a mistake or overhits a overhits a clearance or you know slices a clearance or whatever and i think that's maybe what joe schmidt is is thinking about because that mobility is really going to be important and you look at the kind of big names that have been left out of sides owen franks and you mentioned um you know, we'd seen Devon Toner kind of fall by the wayside. Yeah. And each time it's been mobility that has been um, the thing that has probably led to these guys' um, exclusions. So that's kind of, you know, the, the, I think a higher percentage of ball in playtime is, is expected as kind of because that has risen per World Cup. And I think the kind of patience of kicking and the kind of variety of kicking, we've seen Carl Sinclair, England's tight head prop, kind of thread yeah. a few grubbers through over the course of the warm-up games. And that's kind of used to be something that people laughed at, but actually having those having those options throughout the side, you know, that's what the game of the future looks like, I think. And, you know, we won't see it to that extent at this World Cup, I don't think. But the more kicking options and the more variety that teams can have within that, I think that's going to serve them well. And yeah, as you mentioned there about the the preparations England have had with that trip to Treviso and Wales had the well-documented uh, camp in Switzerland. I know Ireland were away in Portugal and stuff like that. And it's right to point out that the weather's going to play an absolutely massive role because the humidity is going to make ball conditions, ball handling twice as tough. And as you said, it's going to fatigue players twice as quick. And then, as you pointed out, people like Dev Toner, might not be the quickest, might be more suited to a more kind of UK-based game where it's a bit slower, a bit more set-piece. So it is an interesting point. And to be a bit more specific on England themselves, because it's hard not to take note of what they did to Ireland a few weeks ago. I know it's not the be-all, end-all, and I think both teams will agree uh, with me on that. But like, where do you think England are? It seems like they've maybe taken a step or two from the Six Nations where they've shown showcased especially against Ireland and Twickenham, how damaging they can be both sides of the ball, how their big ball carriers, whether it's the Vunapolas, Tuolangi, Cockasinger off his wing, but then also the deft touches of Ford, Farrell, and even Daly at 15. Like, where do you think England are right now as a team? Do you still think they're capable of being absolutely 9, 10 out of 10 one week and then maybe 5 out of 10 the next? Or do you think there's a bit of consistency and... Solid. I don't. What's the word for it? a bit of yeah, a bit of consistency to their their performance. Yeah, I, I, I think I think their upside, as you as you kind of hinting at there, their upside is really 
really quite devastating. What we haven't seen in the in the warm up games, you know, the first I was I've been at three of their warm up games, sorry, two of their warm up games and three overall. So I was at England Wales at Twickenham to start, and I actually thought, ironically, although they shipped nearly forty, they would have shipped forty Wales if if um, a try for England had been. Um, allowed at the end but it was scrubbed off for a forward pass I actually thought that was the best Wales looked in the attack sort of that they looked really dangerous with in unstructured stuff they really gave the ball some air um but England fell into sort of a, a kind of ominous sticky patch you know one of the ones they gave away a few penalties they mm. their breakdown breakdown wasn't as accurate as it has been since John Mitchell the new defense coach and kind of back row mentors come in um there was a bit of that, you know, there was sort of hints of that in Cardiff when they lost um, the next week and they, they actually didn't score a try for um, what is only the third time, I think, under Eddie Jones. And, you know, that was that was with a 23, although they started, it would have been sort of the team that will play Tonga in the USA or, or one of those games. Um, it was sort of the kind of the, the remainder of the 31. Um, what they had, they had seven out of eight, seven out of eight of their bench were, were Lions and they kind of unloaded that bench and still kind of looked a little bit uncertain. Um, for the first half against Italy at the weekend, they, they looked really uncertain as well, really clunky, kind of trying to play a bit flat, but not being kind of quite as accurate. I think their USP is is the Ford Farrell axis. I think they will be at their most fluent when they play that and certainly at their at their at the best they, that gives them the best opportunity to use a full width of the field um and and also that pushes out that pushes Tuilagi out to 13 where I've always kind of thought that he's most dangerous Thokken a singer they've given him time now they kind of didn't they held him back during the Six Nations um his upside as a player like England's is is huge um and it's just that power that those when those when those guys when Tuilagi and, and Thokken a singer are running as part of um, set moves that are really precisely choreographed. You know, defenders can't drift off them until until the yeah. ball's gone. So it's, it's you're always going to have even half a chance, even if it's just to create a one on one for someone like Johnny May or Elliot Daly or or Anthony Watson on an edge. They're always going to have those chances. Um, yeah. So this, this is a fairly long winded answer. I don't think I don't think they've been tested, and I don't think they will get tested until those two games against Argentina and France so there's going to be time for hype to build up which is the re- really interesting thing about kind of covering them is you know they whatever happens they, they're going to beat Tonga they're going to beat the USA and it's going to be a month or so until until they're really tested um, for a concerted period of time in a game I feel so you know whether they're steeled for that is, is a different thing and that's going to hold the key for, for the rest of their World Cup um, I think Ford and Farrell on the field together gives them the best chance and I think Tuilagi on the field you know Eddie Jones wouldn't have cared how much uh, Tuilagi played in this four year cycle as long as he's got him now um, he's giving Mako Vunipola as much time as possible to be fit because when both Vunipola brothers when Tuilagi and, and Tuilagi are on the field together England are, are a seriously dangerous prospect I think Thokken Singer might be used sparingly and that'll depend on Jack Knowles' fitness and whether they feel Anthony Watson is is their fullback. So, um, yeah, huge upside, but kind of kind of an unknown whether they can string together the consistency. I think they, I think they, they've talked about peaking 
for the day they flew out, which is which was yesterday. But really, they need to peak for those Argentina and France games, and then look beyond that to the quarters where it will be high stakes and you know slightly tighter. And that's when um, that's when we'll find out some real answers. I suppose just two quick things on the England squad is. Well, first of all, because it's, it's it's relevant here in Ireland, there's still a lot of debate about people being left home. And only a few weeks ago, at Alex Goodon, and he was chatting about the disappointment he had after such a successful year. Like, I suppose individually, from your perspective, and then also the kind of general public, like, do does everyone feel that this is a squad capable of winning the World Cup, or are they thinking maybe you know Ben Spencer should have been in there, maybe Cipriani should have been there, Alex Good having maybe a plan B, or is the general consensus through the media and public that you know they're in a good enough spot that if they perform they'll win? I think I think they England are in a good enough spot with the people they've picked to get to a semi-final and uh, and I think all bets are off. I think with the inherent nature of the England ga- English game with the 12 clubs and with that huge competition, huge player pool, you're always going to get um, doubts over whether somebody could add a little bit more and, and Cipriani, Cipriani kind of, and, and good. It's I'd say, and, and Spencer, those, those are three kind of really pertinent people you've, picked out because they offer a little bit different something a little bit different someone like Dan Robson maybe as well at scrum half um the Eddie Eddie Jones picked his picked his uh 31 early to avoid what he called sort of external external noise he did he didn't want in the back end of his preparations in the back end of these work in the kind of warm-up tests he didn't want the decision of whether or not Cipriani was going to break into the 31, he didn't want that hanging over what was going on. He didn't want, he, he, you know, people like, people like Alex, who you mentioned there, Danny, Danny Kerr, Chris Robshaw, Dylan Hartley, they were taken out of the equation very, very early, even before the kind of next cut, even before the kind of cut from whatever it was, 38 to 31. And then the 31 was made, um, before after that first warm up game against Wales, so they had three three warm up games to go. Now that's good in that it has eliminated the noise and the, and the the kind of Cipriani and the Good and the Spencer stuff has pretty much been forgotten now. Um, I'd say generally by the kind of by the by fans and and you know big wins have helped that. But what that also has meant is that people like Rory McConaughey, people like Jack Knoll, people like Henry Slade, Jonathan Joseph, Sam Underhill, they're all going, they're traveling with very limited game time. Now, they'll be fresh, clearly, um, and they'll be confident because they've been back to such a degree, but they haven't played a lot of rugby. Now, that's very interesting because England's kind of midfield conundrum is it has stuck around because Henry Slade hasn't been fit to really... Uh, it, 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 he had a good Six Nations, Henry Slade. I think he could have been more assertive as that second receiver outside Farrell. Um, hmm. the, England didn't play with the width that they do when Ford and Farrell are operating together during the Six Nations. Um, I think maybe had he been given a chance during these warm-up games, he could maybe have shown that he could do that. And then we're going to the World Cup and England don't know whether they can play with real width when Farrell's at 10 because you know, without without that second distributor that he's so used to, or where, or you know, whether whether Farrell's in fact inside centre, so the kind of the early squad naming, and you've got to bear in mind how well Eddie Jones has done at previous World Cups, so he knows what he's doing, and he's entitled to kind of make these calls himself. It is a double-edged sword as well. So 
yeah, would, I guess we'll see. I think I think to go back to the original question, I think people believe that the, this squad is strong enough if they all stay fit and they're fit and firing come those Argentina-France games, that they're good enough to w- win those two games, finish top and then win a quarterfinal um, and then go from there. But there, there'll always be the kind of, there'll always be groans because that's the inherent nature of having such a big, big player pool and having a kind of dis- a, a coach as decisive as Eddie Jones in charge as well. Mm, exactly and it's it's important that you mentioned there that Eddie Jones he made a squad announcement quite early on and I remember there's a few question marks raised about it but like if you look at only what happened with say the Irish squad where Joe Smith told the players within two hours I was getting whatsapp so pretty much the confirmed squad that was announced the next day and all the drama that unfolded over the next day or two like it does show you the value in just getting rid of the doubt, getting rid of the the vacuum created by the media and the public on social media, and in like in hindsight, it actually was a bit of a a masterstroke from Eddie Jones. Just as you said, getting rid of the likes of Cipriani, Good, Hartley, etc., from the conversation, and just allowing the people who were involved to focus on their roles and not, as you said, have that outside noise come into come into play, and that that kind of leads me to. The next point and being an Irish man and obviously having a keen interest in the next few weeks from an Irish perspective, like, did you have the same response to like Joe Smith's squad announcement as the general Irish public? Did you see, you know, Klein getting the spot over tone or did you see Chris Farrell always mm-hmm. getting in there instead of Addison? And um, were you as surprised as others or did you expect that squad to be more or less what it was named as? I certainly wasn't um, having heard Joe Schmidt talk about Will Addison after the Wales game and sort of seeing how much he's promoted Addison, how much he's clearly been a fan over the four-year cycle. I was surprised to see him left out. His Addison's versatility was mentioned a lot, you know, and, and in um, the kind of back end of that group stage that he's going to want to cycle the squad unless, you know, he wants to build momentum. Um Klein, now the Klein kind of fallout has been really interesting just as far as, you know, some of the takes regarding, I think, you, I think you've made the point that it isn't, you know, isn't necessarily about what message it's showing to, to younger guys, younger kind of fans, because actually if, you, if, you, if you're a head coach of a side and you feel like um, the best chance of winning the World Cup is to pick somebody within the rules that you're entitled to pick, um, however, however the residency, however you feel about the residency rules, then you're totally entitled to pick that person because actually, the best way to get youngsters into the game, as as English rugby found out in 2003, is by going as far as possible in the World Cup. Um, I was I was quite surprised that, although although I really rate uh, what Luke McGrath does with with Leinster and what he's done in the short periods with um, that he's been allowed sort of. As you know, and they have been short periods given how much uh, Joe Schmidt relies on Conor Murray. I was surprised that Kieran Marmion didn't get didn't get a nod. I thought he was very good, um, or, or just very sharp, just very sharp with the basics in that in that game game time he got against Wales and Cardiff. Um, and Chris Farrell, you know, he's 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 tough, you know. So it's, it's difficult. I, th- I think. Where they where they were on Saturday against Wales certainly revived a few memories of 2018. I think they'd certainly need to go to another level to 
to do anything in the knockout stages. They need Keith Earls to be fit and stay fit. He's seriously kind of, he's a real talisman for them as far as spark and as far as tenacity and, and all of those things. And they need to really figure out what the, that back five of the pack wants to be. Um, I thought the potential of a kind of burn, um, burn Omani, uh, Kainan, trio looked good in in the game that I saw live um and I would have liked to kind of see that again but then again Stander looked Stander looked very good when he came back so maybe there's maybe that kind of selection has bred the bred the competition that Schmidt will need because he, he really will need dynamism, dynamism from those guys if if as kind of as expected and, and it's Stuart Barnes that's made made this point you know going away from Tona kind of places a lot more emphasis on 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 Ireland's phase play and you know they they average more rucks in possession than, and than any other side because they build pressure that way and they like building pressure that way and that was what they built such a fantastic 2018 on but they're going to need dynamism to to make dents with that you know they're going to need dynamism and they're going to need real accuracy because as we've kind of said the the conditions out in Japan might not be conducive to keeping the ball for a long time yeah and that that kind of ties into the point I wanted to make. Like, I completely agree with you with Tyke Byrne at six, Peter O'Mahony at seven, and <clears throat> excuse me, Jack Cohn at eight. Like, I think that's the best balance back row we can have. And as you even said, with relation to the lineup, that gives you three extra options rather than what we traditionally has have is maybe one if you have Vander Fleer and Stander in there. And I just think with Ireland at the minute, and as you rightfully said, when they played Wales there in the weekend. They didn't change a lot. Like they weren't doing anything that, as I said, they did an extra few box kicks rather than uh, trying to play from their 22. But they were really direct, really physical, a lot off nine, used their centers to get over the game line when in doubt. But that brings me back to my point where if they're going to exist in that and if they're going to expect to beat South Africa or I'm sure maybe even New Zealand, and as you said, if they want to win back-to-back two-or-die games, I think they just need to have a bit more. And that's why I think like you're going to see Conor Murray sending absolute rockets into the air because I don't think Joe Smith's going to go away from what he's always done. Like If you no. look at maybe Wales, you see them in the first 10, 15 minutes against Ireland. They were, they were not cutting Ireland open, but they were getting around the edges very easily. And you think of Warren Gatland in past times, he's very direct, physical, gain-line orientated, but they seem to be evolution like bringing a bit something different to their game so i think joe is going to do what he always does which is pressurize teams have a lot of set and piece moves brought in and just geared towards the world cup and exploiting weaknesses of the potential opponents they'll play but then as i said and e madigan made the point as well on luke fitzgerald's podcast it's just really really odd that he maybe doesn't have to start Devin Toner, but to not have that option of by far his most experienced and accomplished line-out caller, to not have him available, he's putting a hell of a lot of pressure on whoever's going to be calling the line-outs in that Scottish game and Rory Best, who's already under the cosh, to really hit the ground running. Because if you get after Ireland's line-outs, as we saw even in Twickenham, it really diminishes their game. And as I said, their unstructured attack off that is not exactly the best. So I just think those elements are going to be fascinating to see if if Ireland can be that accurate and also that effective when being so direct. Because as you saw with England and the Six Nations, if they don't win those collisions, they can look like a pretty average team very quickly. But um, 
like would you pretty much agree with that or is there anything else you kind of yeah they, they, they kind of they, they, um we kind of we haven't quite mentioned him yet but we kind of skirted around mentioning one th- one thing that kind of ace that um joe schmidt does have up his sleeve is that james ryan's looking like a you know top one top two in the world lock at the minute you know his dynamism his he was yeah. sensational in that game against against wales and the kind of he just he was he was absolutely the difference his his return and what and what he gave to um to to that performance he lifted it single handedly and there's a kind of re- there's a band of elite locks at this tournament it will be that who are kind of who are really going to be important for their size they're, they're kind of there's loaded their their focal points for their side in England it's kind of Maratogen mm-hmm. really well supported by George Cruz, um, New Zealand will have Brody Retallick tearing down the tearing down the Titantron like it's the Royal Rumble come the come the <laughs> um, come the quarterfinal stage when he's fit again. Um, it's it's gonna it's gonna be so so interesting, you know. And Ryan is just so important. And on the Devon Toner thing, I'm kind of crunching the numbers the other day, he's started the oh, sorry he's played featured in the most Ireland games this World Cup cycle. So for Schmidt yeah. to go away from him represents a really clinical and a really decisive kind of tactical call. It has to be because coaches need their go-to players. They, you know, trust is such a kind of big weapon when it comes to selection. And and Tony was clearly so important to this hugely successful period that the Ireland have had. So there must be good reason for the way why he's going away from it i think the monster kind of axis at the at the line out is is a big is a big deal you know niles scannell went really well um in the game again i'm talking quite a lot about the game i was at but it just did seem a bit smoother with with burn and with omani with scannell um Mm. and you know rory best has has really struggled and if and you know he's not he's not exactly offering that a huge amount Mm. of mobility around the park either so that has to get better and um so they need that. They need that accuracy. But as, as we've both said, kind of that little bit of extra dynamism to win those um, back-to-back knockout games is going to be so important. So, yeah, without getting into much detail with every other team in the competition, Charlie, like that's England, that's Ireland. We've even said Wales. They've evolved under Warren Gatland. They're very much a side that, you know, when push comes to shove and when it gets to knockout rugby with the coach they have and the leaders they have, they'll be right in the mix. But... Like how, how do you view the other teams? I know New Zealand are favourites still. South Africa are pretty much in most people's eyes the second favourites. Like, do you still would you agree with them that those two, or do you like how I personally feel is I think it's South Africa, England, New Zealand as the kind of top three teams. Then you have the likes of Ireland. Then you have maybe a France. You could then have an Australia turn up as well. You have Wales as well kind of in that second tier that they could beat anyone on their day but just aren't quite at the performance and aren't quite at the level that the other two teams are so like how, how would you assess the the all blacks ahead of the world cup along with the south africans yeah sure so um south africa just it's, it's been really interesting to watch south africa over the over the time that razi erasmus has had them that's obviously started with the three test series against England, they had a kind of get a game against Wales, which they lost in, in over in America, I think, before that. But the three test series, they they kind of showed showed their in showed it's a cliche, but they showed what a kind of blend of um, of youth experience they are. They've got really exciting talents. Janchi burst burst on the scene. He's obviously gone, um, 
and Mpimpi, but Mpimpi's coming and look really good. Um, they've got hardened guys like Dwayne Vermeulen in their pack, you know, Khaleesi, Peter Steftatoy, and those formidable locks, that's a Beth Snayman, um, Franco Moster as well. They're really, as you'd expect, you know, really ticked off up front. But then they've got the little bit of kind of unpredictability. Um, Faf de Klerk at, at nine, the new new guy, um, Herschel Janchi is another nine. Um, Colby just looks superb. He's kind of trans, transferred what he was doing for Toulouse, which was magnificent in in, in Europe and in, in the top 14. And he's he looks amazing. Um sort of as part of that system that looks really good you know they've got they've got Amma outside centre who's leading the kind of defensive effort which is really aggressive and you know, they're pressing up in people's faces pressing um forcing these errors and as I said earlier kind of they've really thought about the conditions I think that they might be um encountering in Japan with the dew and and the wet way the rugby and they're happy to play without the ball and they're actually pretty formidable without the ball because they're so um robust and they force a lot of errors and they're patient with their kicking game and they're persistent with their kicking game as well um the all blacks i think have gone you know it was really interesting with we got a chance to speak to eddie jones after they lost that game in perth and he was it was very funny he was sort of saying you know you, you can't mm. take you can't read too much into that because of um what they're trialing and what they're trialing i guess was the was the barrett mowing their axis at, at 15 and 10 um they've also had a look at surveyor and kane at six and seven either side of reed with surveyor at the base of the scrum kind of using his kind of super strengths and and actually they're dovetailing really nicely as well those three um they'll miss clearly they'll miss uh retallic but they're getting him back for when the when the kind of the big boy stuff starts around the quarterfinal stage um so yeah i mean that group just to look at that group is really interesting because um after they play each other in yokohama which is really kind of uh, sets the tournament off with a real bang. They've got Namibia, Canada, and Italy, um, so they'll have to reset for the quarterfinal stage. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I don't think either of them will be too gutted with a with a loss in that first game in Yokohama because um, I can see them kind of navigating the rest of the group obviously really easily, piling piling up a load of points, and then um, and then resetting for the for the quarterfinal because they've got those deep kind of high quality squads to keep competition and training really high and make sure they're really sharp. The I'm really, I'm really intrigued by France so you just pick to pick two more teams. France look, look red hot. They've been really focused from the start with, I think a kind of 31 plus six squad. Any side that's good enough to leave out uh, Felix Lambie as we'll come to later, you know, they must be going pretty well up front. Dupont is on fire at, at nine, just looks so explosive and so dangerous around the fringes as Scotland found out. Um, and then a kind of another kind of dark horse maybe in Wales and Australia's group is is Fiji. Um, you know they they we know about their traditional strengths, their offloading, their support play, their explosive athleticism. But what they've really got, as they showed when they beat France in in last November, I think was you know there's a def- there's a defensive steel about them. And actually, so you know in Yato, Mata, Nakarawa, they've got just phenomenal, you know, phenomenal kind of mobile mobile back five forwards and what's really interesting is actually world rugby has been um working with those emerging nations to to lower penalty counts and i think fiji have been a big a big kind of um success story of that so so yeah i think i think they've probably kind of counted about 11 sides that could could reach the last eight realistically and then yeah, it's all good. And I suppose that that leads me on. And as I said, it's it's a great shout from you. 
with Fiji and I agree with you with France I think France on their day like a few of the other teams we mentioned are capable of beating anyone and we know they like a good upset in the World Cup and as you said there's been there's been very little disruption to their camp and they seem very focused and they you just need to look at the names on their squad sheets they have all the talent to do it so I suppose the last question I have for you is what everyone kind of wants to somewhat have a a predetermined or a, a predictive answer for is like what how do you see this World Cup going? Do you have a team in mind that you think, you know what, if they play their best, they're gonna win it? Or is there just way too many factors to give a concrete answer? I had Wales in mind um before Talupe Felatao and then Gareth Anscombe were ruled out. I think that's hurting them just because of um just because of that little bit of extra Dynamism those two give. Yeah. I think I think Falatao's one of the very best players in the world and losing him was just a huge, huge blow because as good as their back row is, they probably don't have an athlete like him. Um, I think South Africa, I've just been so so impressed by how clever South Africa look and how they've, dug, they've stuck in really tough games. I think England would have looked a lot more formidable without the Achilles heel that they've probably shown themselves to have as far as whatever it is, complacency, um, concentration, or just being kind of, clever enough to work out those really tight test match situations whether that was in Cardiff or whether that was on the South Africa tour um, you know as we said at their upside they're really devastating you know you've mentioned Australia the Wallabies that I saw something I thought I think I saw James Hall talking the other day that country expects a semi-final mm. it just does and however mixed their war, their build-ups been however mixed the last four years have been and look at what they've done. They've got David Pocock back, and David Pocock in the last two World Cups, 2011, 2015, has been untouchable. He's just been awesome. He'll want to kind of sign off in a really, really kind of good way. I'd, I'd really like to keep an eye on um, New Zealand's odds if they lose that first game against South Africa because they'll get better and better. Um, so, yeah, long, long story short, um, had Wales, not so sure about Wales now. Wales have got Gatlin, which is a big kind of big boost for them because just of how much dog he, te- he tends to kind of instill in teams um why well, but I, I really do like i really do like south africa um and you know south africa new zealand final would be it'd be pretty cool mm. okay so you're going with south africa yeah why not why not okay uh and controversially my money is unfortunately on england wow. which <laughs> might please you but it was bloody uh, cause mayhem with my listener. I just think, well, that's provided everyone stays fit. Yeah, yeah. I think they're the one squad that if the Vunapolas, if Mako can come back, if Tuolangi can stay fit, if Billy can stay fit, I think they they just have the guile and the power that no other side has. And as you said, they have one of the most experienced coaches that knows his way around a World Cup. But staying fit's one thing and getting injured's another. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah. But that's all fair. Last is just a few quick fire questions I've had a few people on Instagram send me questions that they wanted us to try and answer and the first one I suppose would be a bit of crack is and as you said now you've got a squad together yeah. so the best the best squad not to travel to the World Cup okay uh, here we go I'm going to go 15 to 9 so uh, Alex Good, Damian McKenzie uh, Rory Hutchinson uh, Nani Laumapi Santiago Cordero Danny Cipriani 10 Marmion, nine. Rob Evans, Lucid. Uh, Plotter now. Hooker, Owen Franks, tight head. Devon Toner um, and Lom- Lombie at 
in the lock, uh, lock sorry. Uh, then a back row of Issa, Kutsia, Falatau. Um, and then my bench is Hartley, Ben Moon, Sampson Lee, Will Skelton, Scott Fardy, Reese Webb, Joe Marchant, 22, and James Lowe, 23. Pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I can't really... The only argument I might have would be potentially Bismarck Duplessis. I know he wasn't in the mix, but still, yeah, I would, I would, he's still an uncompromising character. Yeah, I, I wouldn't but, be ringing him to tell him he's missed out, even on the... <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be in a hurry yet to be sending DMs on Twitter. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think any other things, no. Like, it's amazing that if you put Will Skelton and uh, Scott into those into that Australia pack, they go from being potentially a, oh, they could maybe spring a surprise to, my God, they have a yeah, really, really good, really, really, really good pack. But um, yeah, if I was to pick my 15, I'd probably go with Moon, Hartley, Franks as a front row, Hartley captain. I'd go Skelton and Toner in the row. I'd go Jerome Kino, Levy, Faletau back row. Looking at probably Ben Spencer and Aaron Crude and halfbacks. I'd probably go Lazowski and Nanu in the center. And a back three of Chris Ashton, James Lowe, and Alex Goot. I think that's a pretty effective team, if you're asking me. So, um, yeah. I suppose the next thing I want to ask, another question is, like, what's your, when you think of the World Cup, like, what's your favorite World Cup memory? I know it might be easy to say Wilkinson slotting that drop kick, but maybe apart from that, is there anything that sticks out where you're like, that's what I think of when I think of rugby World Cups? Do you know what? Apart from apart from hammering Joan uh, Lomi rugby on the um, so get, obviously having all of the, the squads from the '95 that was that wasn't it? So the, then four years later, I remember um, not watching it, but sort of reading in the papers about what Yanni De Beer had done and those five drop goals, and then how sort of at junior clubs just how cool was it to just try drop goals and just basically driving coaches mad by yeah. just trying to trying to slice them from everywhere that was just amazing hit five in a game just absolutely nuts and just yeah real kind of uh two fingers up to convention was great yeah well some people predict the drop kick could uh, make a return at this world cup but time will tell and lastly uh the player to watch in the world cup so maybe a player that not many people are hyping up that you think could really set the tournament to light um, I mentioned Dupont earlier, and I had I had him um, had him written down for this. Is just I think I think he's a freak. Yeah, people know people know a lot about him from having seen Toulouse and, and how well Toulouse went last year. But I think just the extent that he can rip a game open now with a sort of a little bit to get that strength back after his ACL. He was doing what he was doing in the Six Nations, and he and he he tore up Twickenham. He was only on for sort of half and um, maybe half an hour or so but he beat something like nine defenders and just it was crazy what well, he was it was like a one-man army and I think the extent to what he what he can do sort of behind the kind of coherent cohesive sorry um France pack could be really kind of groundbreaking and sort of you know um announcing himself on that stage at whatever he is 22 I think he can he's his his uh, his ceiling is just is so high I can't wait to see that and I suppose if I'm to give one one of my takes he's had a from what I've been told anyway in the camp he's been probably the best trainer and he's kind of showcased it when he's got on the pitch I think if he can stay fit I think Dave Kukoyan could have a a big say on this especially in Ireland's group but if 
because how Keen Healy plays is he gives you 50, 55 minutes of 100% and then is completely gassed. But if Dave Kilcoyne can be a legit option off that bench where he can bulldoze through people and really bring a fresh set of legs, gain line, I think he could be used a hell of a lot in all the big games for Ireland because as you saw against Wales and stuff like that, he was he was destructive to say the very least. So I'd, I'd keep my eye on him. The, yeah, I mean, he was the, the bulldog from Munster. Really, really kind of remiss of me to talk a lot about that game in Cardiff and not mention him. He was he was brilliant. He was absolutely fantastic. So, so destructive in the loose and just really clever as well. He, he chucked a little offload in there to Bundyaki and it was, just looked just look so sharp. I normally do sum yourself up in three words, etc. But for this, I want you to sum up England's chances in three words. Uh, last time it was keep keep Billy fit. I think they've got to keep keep Manu fit this time. <laughs> I, think, I think two laggies kind of usurped Billy Van Polar as as far as how important he is to the side. And yeah, as we've as we've mentioned, kind of if as long as however long Jones keeps his kind of gun fifteen or gun twenty three together and and away from mishaps, I think England's chances grow and grow. So keep two laggy fit. <laughs> Yeah, completely fair. Well, listen, Charlie, that wraps it up. And I want to thank you for taking time up, t- taking time off, I should say, to come on and chat about all the different sides and the different things we might expect to see. And I'm sure you're looking forward to just going there, obviously, as a journalist and as a rugby nerd, so to speak, but also as a fan to be able to see the Japanese culture. And as you said, there's so many interesting subplots going into that World Cup. So, I'm extremely jealous. I hope you enjoy it. And yet again, thanks a million for coming on to have a chat. 